episode, by the way, Barry, I'm going to specify it this week since I aired last week. This is episode 293. That's wow. right, 293, not like last week when I fucked up and said the wrong episode number. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us here on Breaking Cave with Badrin and Barry. With me is my co-host, Barry Rose, who uh, at the time of this recording is thinking about how early he's going to have to get up in the morning to go pick up the lovely Linda from the airport. That's another story for another time. This week, Barry Rose, first of all, welcome. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. On this particular episode, we are going to the UK back in the late 80s, little Owen Hart versus Marty Jones. Barry, I'd never seen Marty Jones before this match. How about you? I think I have. I, uh, I think I had seen a couple of Marty Jones. He did spend time in Japan. So that's why I'm surprised when you say you haven't seen him because I know that you watched a lot of the Japanese stuff. And I want to say that, uh, Marty Jones was in New Japan at one point as well. Uh, well, if he was, I do not recall, and I apologize for that. So, Barry, before we get to our match of the week, besides the match of the week, this week we are also offering up Barry Rose, the top ten movies with perfect endings. Who doesn't love a movie that has a perfect ending, Barry? You and I always love talking movies. This is the top ten with perfect endings. Think about it real hard as to what number one might be, folks. So before we get there, Barry, let's talk a little sports, Barry, uh-huh. because it has been a sports-filled weekend, not only for me, but for Barry Rose. And I will just say, as pointed out in the brothership, uh, brothership today at the time of this recording, Barry Rose, you made a fundamental error the other day when you called out Boston sports fans and the series was not over. Because, see, Barry Rose, I pointed out that myself, I don't talk shit until after the series is over. Because if you choose to do it beforehand, oh, Barry, it's mea culpa time. Talk to those Boston sports fans, Barry well, Rose. Let's let's put this all in perspective. A, should I go one, two, three, or go A, B, C? I'll go A. So A... I was predicting at the beginning of the season, Boston was one of two teams I was predicting was probably going to go to the finals. And then if not win the finals, at least be in the NBA finals. So I, I am not a fan of the Celtics. I'm a look, I'm a New York Knicks fan. We can't be fans of the Celtics, but there is a level of respect. And the level of respect is the team plays hard as shit. To me, they are as far as hustle. The only team that's really above them is the Miami Heat. Boston hustles. They're well coached and they play as a team. I did not call them out. What I said was Boston was up. That's all I said. No, no, I didn't say you were calling out the team. You were calling out the fans. Well, yeah, but fuck the, fuck the Boston fans. I got to clear it now. I absolutely, <laughs> I was calling our listeners in Massachusetts. Yeah, though. exactly. I said there is a long, even Harold Strassler, who lives in South Florida, is making his way to come find me now. T-shirt tucked in and all, Jeff. He's, he's coming after me, but has he know, ever mentioned that he plays hockey on a, uh, over 50 team? Uh, and know, loves the cars, apparently. But no, I wasn't calling out the fans. It, just the opposite. I, I think I was calling out the team for, and that's what I think maybe it was interpreted, but I was calling out the team because they were, look, they were playing like my Knicks play or like the Sixers, who's my second team being, you know, the, the Knicks just fucking laid down and let them run roughshod Miami. And Miami's a, a very good team. 
even with only two or three quote unquote star players, two star players, they are the best coach team in the NBA. Spolstra has, you know, it's the Pat Riley influence. They, they, Miami is just, I don't like them. They're the bad guys to me. I, the level of respect I have for Miami is just out there. And Boston is very similar. If Boston was laying down the first half of that game, even the game yesterday was competitive in the first half. I don't want to say Boston was laying down. However, the Sixers in the second half just fucking rolled over and put their butts up in the air, Jeff. So let me ask you a question as a Philadelphia sports fan. I believe it was our boy Flaherty that asked this question. Uh-oh. Does this loss by the Sixers, okay, and Doc Rivers, how many times has he lost in a game seven now, by the way? Uh, <laughs> sure. But, yes. but anyway, does this loss somehow call into question whether or not, and I'm not saying it does or doesn't, I'm just throwing it out there for a little, uh, little sports talk here on Breaking K. Faber, sure. Bodron and Barry. Does this in some way make you think that maybe Joel Embiid should not have been the MVP? And I know that this is there a guy in Denver perhaps there. that is more deserving of the award right now? I'm sure all our Philadelphia fans are going, what the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, go ahead. Well, the Joker, look, the Joker did a great job. He's a hell of a talent. Embiid had a great year. He had Harden by it. So you can't say there was nobody else on the team. It was that, you know, you've got fucking James Harden. James Harden, shitty. eh, I don't want to say shitty, but not a great year last year. And this year, inconsistent was the key. Got a couple of games where he's over 40 points. And then as you were discussing with me off air, like 11 points. So, you know, if, if James Harden doesn't show up every night, what happens I, I think Flaherty makes a good point and you can make a good case. I would probably still stick with Embiid, but I certainly would, could listen to every argument going for the Joker because my God, he absolutely does. You know, he's great. I don't have an issue with that. So I will say, although I'm not always a huge fan of his, I did think I, I saw Stephen A. Smith on ESPN this morning, uh, with a very funny comment that he thought that James Harden had such a bad game, uh, seven. For the Sixers that, uh, in order to remain incognito and not uh, have to show his face to the Philadelphia sports fans, he should shave his beard off. What do you think? <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Sleepy. Shave off the beard, Sleepy. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I think there's got to be an overhaul. And I think the big question is, is Doc Rivers, what are they going to do? Uh, I, and I'm twofold. Has Doc Rivers lost the team? Is that a, a chance? And I don't know if that's the case. And then if you're going to replace Doc Rivers, who are you going to get? Like, you know, let's not, let's not get rid of Doc Rivers and just throw somebody who, you know, who can't, who can't get the job done. And they, there is a, there's a coaching carousel that's currently going on in the NBA. A lot of teams making a lot of moves. So next up. Oh, it's time for the booker to talk a little NHL hockey. Yeah, we don't do that often here, Barry, but I don't know if you noticed it, Barry. Oh, right now there's some, uh, some butts being squeezed together. The rectums are slowly closing, tightening up, if you will, on those Toronto Maple Leaf fans in our audience. That's right, John Pantalone and others. I'm talking to you because my Florida Panthers, that sound you hear is the Florida Panthers slapping the Maple Leafs. And oh boy, was it sweet and much 
uh, as I said earlier, I said nothing. We had certain hockey fans going on the board saying, oh, the Florida Panthers, they don't even belong in the league. Uh, they shouldn't even have teams in Florida uh, because, the, oh, yeah, the only teams that should ever have in the NHL are the original six and fuck everybody. Well, guess what? <laughs> Guess what? That was good. That was good. For the 30th consecutive year, <laughs> the Stanley Cup, the NHL's trophy, will not be going through Canada. It will be going through the, by God, United States of America. Thank you. Uh, so anyway, the Panthers completely <laughs> playing over their head because I was really disappointed in the season last year. President's uh, Trophy winners, Barry, with the best record in the league. Then they shockingly knock out the Boston Bruins, who had – uh, no question about it, the greatest regular season in league history. The Panthers knocked them out in an incredible series. They go in. The Leafs, they beat the Lightning. Lightning are a great team, but, you know, they beat the Lightning. First time they get uh, past the first round, I think something like 20 years, 19 years, something like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, now I'm Billy, Billy Big Balls because, you know, uh, my Maple Leafs now. Yeah, well, not so fast here, uh, Snappy, because let me tell you, I don't know where the Florida Panthers are going. They got Carolina and Eastern Conference Finals next. They might lose four to nothing. I don't fucking know. But I can tell you one thing. We're playing with house money, and I'm just going to enjoy the ride. Not going to say shit until after that series is over. If we lose four to nothing, hey, I'm happy. We had a fucking hell of a run. We got the Eastern Conference Final. First time since like 95 or 96. But now... If we go past that and we get to the Stanley Cup Finals, holy shit, we're enjoying the ride down in South Florida, where apparently, Barry Rose, nobody follows hockey, even though the attendance at the last few games was uh, at 105% over capacity. No one gives a shit about hockey in South Florida, Barry, even though uh, uh, Tampa has won, I don't know, three Stanley Cups. So apparently, Florida should just be uh, exercised from ever having hockey teams. Let's just uh, put a team in Quebec, where it failed once already. Let's put a team in Hartford, where it failed once already, but that's beside the point. By the way, did you know, my rant is done there, Barry. Did you know that uh, there apparently uh, are negotiations? This is really going to fucking blow some people's minds uh, that live in Canada. They apparently are building a new stadium not too very far from where the sainted Mrs. Bowden and I live with the idea of attracting yet another NHL team to the Atlanta area in the suburbs north of Atlanta. That would be the third time they've tried to put a hockey team in Atlanta, Barry Rose. Wow, that would really make some people just fucking lose their mind. What do you think, Barry? It's going to make a lot of Canadians lose their mind for sure. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's, it's funny too about the hockey thing. And it, look, I get it. It's 80 degrees out. It, hockey is considered a winter sport. They're playing on fucking ice. But, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And I, I went to a game, and it certainly it's been years. It's I think it's been close to 30 years since I was at a Panthers game. Actually, it was 1994, so it's 29 years. 94? 95. Was I was 95. told there'd be no math. Well, I'm, I've got every finger and toe right now as I'm going through. It was 95. It was 28 years ago, and I went to two hockey games. And... uh I got to tell you, if if they weren't sellouts, they were certainly close to it. Florida has embraced the Lightning even. Fucking, you know, Lightning, and they have Stanley Cups. But at the same time, the fans in Tampa have completely embraced the Lightning. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I, they have. I, the I hate the Lightning as a Florida Panthers fan. But I will absolutely say the Tampa Bay Lightning has a tremendous fan base. They've always got big crowds. I'll tell you one thing. 
that if you don't know the Florida Panthers, maybe you do not realize a lot of times people will watch Florida Panthers games and they'll see this one section that for reasons completely lost on me is directly across from where the cameras are at, you know, center ice. And it's very sparsely populated. The reason is, is because the ownership of the Florida Panthers, who generally speaking, I think have done the, the guys that have owned the team for like the last maybe six, seven years have done a really nice job. Okay. But one of the things they did that I completely disagree with is they took that whole section and they made it like a corporate section where they want corporations to buy the seats in mass. So they charge more for them and stuff like that. So when you got the corporate people that are like, Oh, a hockey game. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll go to one and they go and never come back. Right. And that section, because it's for corporations only, usually appears to be relatively empty. And what they don't show is that there are people in the rest of the arena, but they made this horrible, in my estimation, decision to just have this one section. That's the section that's on camera, by the way. So, you know, if you're up in, uh, you know, Red Deer or Saskatchewan and the Panthers are on, you're like, hey, uh, you know, you hosers down there in South Florida, uh, you don't, uh, you don't go to the hockey. What the hell, you know? Uh, and that's why. So if they would ever fucking take away that, I'm sure they could get people to sit in those sections because they're great fucking seats. Anyway, by the way, Barry, little, little bit of tidbit that I just heard this morning. I don't know if you knew this, you know, Jason Tatum, Boston Celtics sure. last night. Sure. 51 points, uh, all credit to him. I was on fucking fire last night. Did you know that Jason Tatum went to the same school as Florida Panthers Hart Trophy candidate? You know what the Hart Trophy is, Barry? That's like the MVP of the whole fucking league. All right. Matthew Kachuk of the Florida Panthers played for the Calgary Flames last season. He and Jason Tatum went to school together. That's kind of cool. You know, that, yeah. that's Elite NBA talent and this elite NHL talent. They all went to the same damn, uh, I don't know if it's a middle school, high school, whatever. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, anyway, now let's get back to wrestling, Barry, because one of the things that has happened since last we spoke, Barry, oh. I have something to pull up that I want to address with you, uh, Lord Barron's. <clears throat> First of all, there's the whole... What is it now? 61,000 tickets sold uh, in the UK for the AEW event. So I saw this little tidbit. Rumor, AEW and Warner's Brothers Discovery are apparently close to a new five-year, one billion, that's with a B, billion-dollar agreement. The entire AEW package, including pay-per-views and weekly TV, would be exclusive to Warner Brothers and subject to streaming on Warner Brothers Discovery platform. An, ex an announcement is expected from Warner Discovery next week. Uh, this was, by the way, something I saw last week. And Tony Khan did say that on this week's show that will be coming out uh, at the time this show drops, it will be tomorrow, that he's got a big announcement planned, and I'm wondering if this is a big announcement. Barry Rose, I was told, uh, and you uh, you mentioned this to me also, that Tony Khan's just a big old mark. How's he negotiating this kind of deal? Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, I, I don't know where you're getting your news from, but you should really start paying more attention to people on Facebook because they're convinced that Tony's a mark and that Tony's a complete and utter failure and that AEW's a failure. And regardless of a billion-dollar deal with Warner Brothers – Look at the way his eyes bulge out, Jeff, and look at the way the referee draws attention to herself. 
I got, I, to be honest, I got more problems with Tony's hairstyle. I'm not a big fan of that hairstyle. <laughs> What's wrong with his hair? Come on. I don't know. It's like that curly, you know, he like can't help over, it. over exactly. his front, the front of his forehead. Uh, not a good look in my opinion, but hey, the guy's going to sign a billion dollar deal. A deal. Fuck him. You know, if I had hair, I'd wear it that way if someone gave me a billion dollars. But, uh, yeah, uh, this is, this is big fucking game changing news though, Barry. It is. And look again, you know who wins? You win. I win. All wrestling fans win. When deals like this take place, money's being exchanged. It's only going to be for the betterment of professional wrestling. And look, AEW's like him or hate him. And again, if you hate him, I'm not really sure why, but uh, there's some huge plans coming up over the next couple of months with CM Punk's returning, a second television show. Again, I, I think Tony's got to get his booking down. I, I think there's got to be more cohesion there. But at the same time, Warner Brothers, I, I'm assuming Warner Brothers knows a little bit more about the way business works than 90% of the people when I read comments on Facebook. So I'd have to Wait assume- a minute. Are you trying to tell me they know more than those guys on Twitter? Yeah, it's exactly what I'm telling you. That's a shocking, shocking. Yes. Moment. So I, I, I think we're all going to win, Jeff. You know who knows, uh, about that kind of stuff about billion dollar deals and things like that is people that make movies with perfect endings. Ooh, nice segue, Barry. Ooh. Let's go to that segment right now. All right, Barry, our match of the week. I know that Barry Rose loves nothing more. Well, Barry Rose, quite frankly, loves a lot of things. But when it comes to wrestling, he loves nothing more than that Billy Robinson, Tony Charles style of wrestling. And this week, Barry Rose, we go to the U.K. Shout out to all our listeners not named John Leake, who, quite frankly, gets a little too much attention, quite possibly. But anyway, we're going to the U.K. as Owen Hart. Barry Rose, I don't know if you noticed during the introductions, Bronco Owen Hart. I thought that was hilarious, by the way. <laughs> Bronco. <laughs> Taking on Marty Jones for the vacated title. Barry Rose, tell the folks what you thought. By the way, this match, I don't have a specific date. I'm thinking 87, 88. There is so much that takes place. I actually went back and I watched this twice because I don't think you can get it all in one viewing of just how great first off this match is. But you also have to like this style. And as you just said, this is the catch Billy Robinson style snake pit. It's British wrestling, essentially. And to me, this might be the best pure form of wrestling uh, at least for me, I, I'm always able to connect with it. You know, I like it, it's fun. It's like professional wrestling. I like the brawls. There was always a place for Abdullah and guys like that, and I enjoyed it. But if you gave me a wrestling match, Jack Briscoe, Steve Kern, Billy Robin, you know, guys who could literally wrestle, I really always look forward to that. And this match doesn't disappoint because this is a wrestling match. You've got Marty Jones, top heel. He's he's a dick. I, I think that's what I think is one of the great things. This isn't just a guy who is being a heel to get heat. He legit comes off as a dick, right? <laughs> to me, that's great. Like, I, I at no point think I'm watching a guy playing a dick. I believe I'm watching a dick here, and that's – I just think that's that's a, almost a lost art. Are you saying you know a dick, Barry? You, you know I, a dick when you see one? I Well, you know <laughs> – Ah, where do I go with this one, right? Well, I, yes, I, I do know a dick and it's, uh, and this, he's a big dick, Marty Jones. We got to give him credit for that. But, you know, it, it, it's so common now that even when we turn on 
wrestling like AEW or the WWE, even AEW, you just know the bad guys really aren't dicks. You know, in some cases they may be, but for the most part, they're playing a character. This guy, though, Marty Jones appears to be a huge dick, and I think that really works extremely well. This is so much fun. Uh, it starts off, too, the announcer's last name is Crabtree. I think it's Brian Crabtree. Yes, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a relation. There's got to be. Now, what was the brother who was the promoter? Was That wasn't... Uh, well, wait a minute. Shirley was Big Daddy. Right. And then his brother was the promoter for years that made Shirley the star, right? Was it this guy? Was it Brian Crabtree? Max. Max. Thank you, Thank so you. we have another Crabtree. Uh, it's Brian. It's like the Von Erics. <laughs> like they just come out of the woodwork, Jeff. They just come out of the woodwork exactly. and – it's it just gets crazy. There's so much to like, though. Again, the the style that they're wrestling here is great. You're going to see a lot of uppercuts. Those uh, I think uh, Claudio Castagnoli does the uppercuts now. But Dory Funk Jr. was known for these. I love it. They call it the European uppercut. The bolo like forearm. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. This is a two out of three falls match, but you're going to see a lot of those forums. You're going to see a lot of what is essentially the British wrestling. The real takeaway from this, at least in my opinion, Owen Hart, and, and I'm going to throw a question at you that you're not expecting, but Owen, for, fuck that. How about the women sitting ringside first off? Well, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> okay. How about that one woman in the white dress, right? The, the, the apparent bridal dress that she wore. <laughs> The 300-pound yes, bridal dress. She is a big girl, and she's wearing a bridal dress, and she's sitting front row. It does look like she's going to get into the ring. Right next to her is a blonde, a suicide blonde, a bleach blonde. Those two alone are worth the are worth the price of admission and watching this match. But Owen Hart, I'm going to assume he was four or five years as a pro when this match took place. That may even be generous. It may only be two or three. He he is as you watch this match, he's probably better. And hindsight being twenty twenty, he's probably better than ninety percent of the guys working at this stage, at least from my own memory. He's absolutely incredible. Years ago, I had a conversation with Jimmy Berkeley. Jimmy Jet was on our 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 podcast about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, he was a referee in Florida, Memphis, WCW, and we were talking about two guys, and he was 50%, and this is what it was. We were talking about guys that were naturals. From the time they got in the ring, you just knew they were going to be fucking great. Owen Hart's one of those guys. There's no way in hell Owen Hart's not one of those guys. Dick Slater was another guy. Dick Slater was main eventing within a year of being in the business and literally was fantastic. Jimmy brought up two names. I'm going to agree with one and completely disagree with the other. The one that I agree with, Kurt Angle. Uh, he said to me within Kurt Angle, uh, not even in just an OVW. At the time, he said, this guy is going to be one of the biggest stars of wrestling. He was correct. The other one he said was Mongo McMichael. And uh, while I feel absolutely terrible of what this poor guy is going through uh, currently, it, it's literally heartbreaking. But I, I never saw him as becoming a huge star in wrestling, and Jimmy did. But, Jeff, I throw this out to you. Based off of Owen Hart and, and just how fucking fluid he was, especially in this match. And here's the other thing that we should bring up. In 1988, if you're going to England to work – you're you're not going there to make a lot of money. 
this isn't about anything other than the love of professional wrestling. And I, I got to say, I truly do respect that when guys are always chasing contracts at, you know, in the eighties and the nineties and to this day, uh, Owen Hart did not appear to be that guy. He was a guy that wanted to get better, spend time in Japan, but in England, you're not making a shitload of money. And here he is putting forth a 20, 22 minute match in England. So besides Owen Hart or the names that I've mentioned, who else struck you as a natural literally right out of the gate? Well, I mean, we've talked about Terry Gordy before. There you go. Uh, that was, uh, you know, quite frankly, right out of the gate uh, appeared to have, uh, anything you could ever want uh, in a pro wrestler, you know, uh, Owen <clears throat> for, uh, you know, for being that guy that appeared right from the get go to have it a similar, uh, career arc, uh, if you will, as Eddie Guerrero, because grew up in a wrestling family was wrestling at a age, uh, probably that was, he was too young to be in the business, but, uh, that's the way Eddie was too. I mean, Owen was bigger than Eddie, right. but there are stories out there that Owen would, uh, you know, go with his brothers to different towns. And when someone would no show or not be able to compete, they'd put under, uh, Owen under a hood and have him wrestle, you know, like when he was like maybe 15 years old, if, you know, maybe not even a little bit younger because he was already learning uh, uh you know different moves and and uh, techniques and stylings and stuff like that to where he could go out there on a spot show under a hood at that age and have a good match uh that's the way that Eddie was because Eddie was training in his dad's ring uh you know when he was very young too so i i think there's a lot of similarities there although Owen was you know definitely a, a little bit of a bigger guy than than Eddie was at that age uh yeah no uh Owen, to me, uh, I'm not breaking any new ground here, was a guy that when I saw him, I said, holy shit, this guy's going to be a huge name in the pro wrestling business. And, you know, um, did he reach the heights of his brother? Uh, he did not. But I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think Brett probably wanted it a little more than Owen did. Owen never wanted the pro wrestling life. I don't believe, I think for Owen, the pro wrestling life was a means to the end. He wanted to go back home. Uh, everything I've read, he wanted to be a firefighter and he wanted to, uh, raise his family, uh, back in Calgary and such like that, where Brett was driven and committed to be, uh, that guy. And, you know, sometimes that happens in the pro wrestling business. And, uh, I don't think that being a huge national star meant as much to Owen as it did to Brett Bear. No, I would absolutely agree. I don't, that, that was the beauty of Owen too. And everything that we, I guess, have learned, uh, in hindsight when it comes to Owen was he was a devout family man in wrestling. He, it was a way to pay his bills. He was a natural. He was fucking fantastic. And it, it, we just never saw this in the WWE, just how great he was, but his priorities always appeared to be in order. And I think it was the fact that he was a family man and, uh, you know, and it, it, to me, it's wonderful that AEW has partnered up with the family to try to do what they can do. What a fucking talent, Jeff. And, uh, you know, imagine, imagine Barry being so fucking good at something that you can make a living off of it and you really could care less if that's, uh, you know, the way you make your living or not. I mean, that's just yeah. like such a blessing. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wish everyone could have the, the ability to do that. No, I have to agree too. And it's, you know, again, it's so tragic. And, and, and I was thinking about this too. I was, I watched this, uh, this match yesterday and then I watched it again today just because this is my type of match. But, you know, if, 
if what had happened to Owen and Owen's demise and Owen's death, if that had occurred today, I think we would have seen a completely different scenario than what occurred. Because in hindsight, I realize it's 25 years ago. I think it's at this stage, right? It's 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, when it's close to it, that Owen died. And the fact that the show carried on, that they had to clean up, and excuse me for using this word, they had to clean up the mess that was in the ring so they could carry on a show and they didn't cancel it. It's so disturbing in hindsight. The more I think about it, the, the more it's disturbing to me. And I don't think that could have occurred today. I, I think with the outrage... I think the outrage that people have to begin with, but I think the social media outrage immediately would have just been immeasurable. I, I oh, Vince would have been crucified. No question. He would have been crucified. Probably but rightfully happened. so. Yeah. Oh, I don't think – I think you can remove the word probably and you could say rightly so. And And he really should be held – I, I know it's 25 years, but he really should be held more accountable for this. And our old friend Kevin Orcutt reached out to me, and Kevin usually does. Kevin doesn't always post in the group. And, Jeff, I have a feeling you get these messages as well. If we say something, Kevin will immediately respond as he's listening. And he was telling me, he goes, I think people – dislike Tony Khan. We were talking about how people rail on Tony Khan, but he's not a bad guy where Vince has done some really fucking nasty shit, including continuing a pay-per-view when one of his top top stars, top attractions died on the fucking pay-per-view. And Kevin was that, that's different the because, you know, of reasons, uh, Barry. Exactly. And isn't that great when people have quote unquote reasons. Let me, yeah. let me tell you my reasons. It doesn't mean a fucking thing. It's, it's so wrong. This is so disgusting. And I got to tell you, you know, when I look at the criticism of Vince McMahon, and I hate to say this, it's always based off of things like, fuck him. He killed the territories. My wrestling's not the same today as it was in my youth. It sucks. That's what people crucify Vince McMahon for. Yeah. They're not crucifying him for fucking the Owen Hart thing. They're not crucifying him for the big rumor that, you know, he made every woman in the company sleep with him, allegedly. You know, all these fucking stories that are out there and stories I've heard from people that worked within the company. No, it, it's more like we're going to crucify him because he killed my childhood. It runs so much deeper on that. End result, this match is a Fucking mine uh, of gold. It's a well, fucking wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I tell you what, sure. before before we leave Vince and get back to the match, which we absolutely will, I, I thought of a question. You tell me what you think the answer to this is. There's no right or wrong answer. Strictly for uh, you know a talking point. Owen, from everything I've heard, didn't want to do the stunt. Okay, that that led to his death, and he basically went up there because you know. He, he needed to make a living for his family. Okay. If Brett was still with the company, would Owen have been asked to do the stunt? And if he was asked, did Brett still have enough stroke to say, no, fuck that. Owen, you're not going to do this. What do you think? I think so. So to answer the first, if he was, I, I think, I think Brett would have had a conversation with Owen. And basically said, you're not fucking doing it. This is not part of what you do. This is not professional wrestling. I, I think had 
had he not been able to nix it, he would have gotten in Owen's head and, and basically Owen. And I, I think that's something that, that's a, that's a first off, that's a great fucking question, Jeff. I try. And, Thank you. And I think that's something that if, if we ever had bread at a fan fest, that is an honest question. That I don't think anybody has ever asked. My own personal though, I think Brett would have been able to convince Owen. I don't know if Brett had enough stroke to convince McMahon, but I think he would have been able to convince Owen. So, you know, uh, you said that's a question that, that Brett's never been asked. That I'm think, aware of, yes. Do, do you think that's a question that Brett has asked himself? Absolutely. And that's, yeah, I, that's unfortunately, very I've got short term, uh, memory loss and long-term memory loss and just complete overall memory loss. So yes, the answer is I bet, I bet Brett has blamed himself a lot for this yeah. uh, over the years. Yeah. So uh getting to this match uh, back to it. Uh Like you said, this is a super fun match to watch. A few uh, notes I made about this. Uh My number one note on the match, Barry was the, the women at ringside, <laughs> the, the woman wearing the, uh the large Marge, if you will, wearing a, who apparently has a little too much rouge on too, uh wearing what appears to be some form of bridal dress. She apparently was really happy to see Owen that night. I don't oh, know. she, was but uh yeah bronco owen hart uh so uh british rules this is a uh 12 rounds three minutes each so you know like when you first see this that's that's why they you know that they they do it that way also uh this was a really small ring berry this was definitely not like a a ring from the olympic or a ring from the old wwf days this is a very tiny ring like even smaller than a lot of tv studio rings you know they're they're fighting for this title because the there was an explanation offered. Well, the German that had held the title refused to come over and defend it against Marty Jones, so he was stripped of the title. I'm sure there was some backstory there that we don't know about. I will tell you there does appear I'm sure there was some sort of editing going on with with TV that there's a jump ahead from like round two or three to where it goes to round five. Uh so if you notice that, you know, it, it's just the way the uh the video is edited at some point. Uh, the first fall of the match, uh, goes to Owen. Uh, he does a head scissors into a roll up. Very nicely done. Uh, the second fall, uh, Owen does a, uh, goes for one of those, uh, cradles off the top rope. Uh, there's a roll up and a bridge. Uh, very nicely done by Marty Jones. You know, you know, Marty Jones, I have to tell you one thing. And this is something that's not, and I'm not saying this is a slight at all. He's appears to be very nondescript. You know, I, I, my notes that I wrote down, he, he kind of is a, uh, without a beard, sort of like Mike Jackson, you know? Well, he's heavier. He's, uh, yeah, no, no, but I'm saying <laughs> it's not like he's got a flashy ring gear. Uh, you know, he doesn't have kind of any kind of special look to him that screams, yeah. this guy's a great, but he's incredibly solid. There's nothing, you know, this guy, he's not going out there where you're going, wow, this guy is kind of a stiff, you know, Owen's completely carrying the match. No, this guy's a very solid wrestler. He just doesn't seem to have a real flashy appearance to him. Uh, so, and the, uh, the third fall, Barry, uh, tell the folks about the third fall. So the third fall, uh, let me just pull up my notes as well. Third fall is, uh, it's a pretty even fall and it ends. Hold on one second. And I know how it ends, but I want to see if I can uh, put a little more flash on it. Uh, dun, dun. Yeah, much like Marty Jones. It needs a little more flash. Very cool. Might need a little more flash. I got to <laughs> say his ring tights are at least flashy. So 
it ends. And there's some incredible shit. There's some incredible like flips that take place and like reverse pinning flips and all this. Marty Jones gets Owen in a schoolboy and it's a schoolboy and it's one, two, three. And schoolboy is a, I guess a rolling reverse cradle for those that uh, don't have their kayfabe dictionary handy. <laughs> it's <laughs> exactly. My bookshelf here. There's a guy in Iowa going, what the fuck is a, is a schoolboy? <laughs> I've seen this for the last 20 years in the observers and I still don't fucking know. It's a rolling reverse cradle. It's, but it works. You know, it, it didn't have to be flashy because it was a reverse on Owen's pin attempt and Marty Jones gets it. And then Marty Jones cuts what I think is a great heel promo because again, he's not, He's not doing the Mad Dog Michonne, you know, type of growling voice. He's not screaming. He's just like a fucking dick that's just coming out there and just stating how good he is. And to the betterment of the two women that are sitting ringside who lose their shit every time Marty Jones grabs that mic. So uh let me say that I really enjoyed the finish to this match uh, where Owen basically, after the match is over, he shakes Marty Jones's hand. And then... Uh, he takes the microphone and completely puts Marty Jones over because Owen's not going to be there the next day. He's going back to, to Canada. He completely puts Marty Jones over. And I thought that was a really nice touch, Barry. It was. It was, uh, it, you know, again, you, the only thing you would ever hear about Owen, it, it's not even a negative, maybe the biggest river in the history of the business, but yes. most of his rivers, real rivers, most of his ribs really weren't mean spirited. Uh, I know a couple of might have been borderline, but, you know, you hear like the Mr. Fuji ribs and you go, oh, shit, that's yeah. not funny. With Owen, here was a guy just having fun. Yeah. The, the, the greatest Owen rib ever is when he called his dad and he said he was Reg Parks. <laughs> Did yeah. you, you heard that one? Where we basically, as Reg Parks is telling Stu, you know, well, Stu, you know, I, I could have taken you. And Stu slowly begins to lose his mind at the, the thought of that Reg Parks could take him in a, in a shoot. And, you know, Owen is just, he's steadily building, building, building until his dad is about ready to stroke out. And then Owen, you know, uh, kind of like starts snickering. And, you know, Stu's like, God damn, Owen got me again. And uh, that's just great stuff. The other, the other thing about this match, and then we'll wrap up the, the part about this match. You know what you didn't see in this match, Barry? And I realize this is, uh, you know, uh, mid to late 80s in, in the U.K. Not one fucking clothesline. Oh. Not one. And tell me the last time you can remember seeing a wrestling match that it did not involve not more than one series of clotheslines after clotheslines, not one here. We will post a link to this match. Owen Hart taking on Marty Jones uh, in the UK. This is really good stuff, and uh, we hope you check I've never seen Marty Jones before this match, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Got a kick out of it. Hope you will, too. Barry, I know you always love a good movie discussion. Oh, yeah. And this week, currently, courtesy, excuse me, of movieweb.com, I bring to you Barry Rose movies with a perfect ending. Okay. Barry Rose, tell me what movie first jumps out to you as being a movie with an absolutely perfect ending. The Thing. 1982's The Thing. Okay. Let's see if it's on the, and what made it so great to you? Because there was nothing else that these two guys could do. They're, they've got nowhere to go. They're in, uh, the snow. They'll die out in the snow, and they basically light up a joint, and that's it. 
Okay. Uh, that part of it appealed to you? <laughs> I'm ready to die, but by God, I'm going to fucking... Yeah, which is kind of like, all right, we know our life's over. We've we fought this creature. We got nowhere to go. We got nowhere to shelter. We have You're no like heat. Richard Gere and Officer and Jump. I got nowhere to go. That's it. Yeah. The first time we've ever referenced that movie. I don't know if it's going to be on the list, but... The first movie on the list, Barry, at number 20. It's the top 20. Don't know if we're going to touch upon every movie, but number 20 is a great example of a movie with a perfect ending, Barry, 1968, Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston. Good God, it's a it's a fantastic ending. And I got to say, it, yes, 100% one of the best endings. Even the ending of the remake that was with uh, Mark Wahlberg, directed by Tim Burton. I don't think the movie's good. It, it, but the ending, the ending was really good. Like, I liked it. It was a surprise, kind of like that. The first time you saw that ending, too, the from the original Planet of the Apes, that was really impactful, in my opinion. So, love it. You know, one of the things about that whole series, uh, the original series I'm talking about with Heston, sure. uh, and uh, I think there was like five movies that, uh, you know, went from the late 60s and into the early part to the mid part of the 70s. As the movie, uh, like you went from part one to part two, and then you got, yeah, I know it was like uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, uh, and Battle of the Planet of the Apes. I can't remember what the second one was. Oh, it was Beneath the Planet of the Apes, I think. But if you watch closely, fewer and fewer dollars were spent on the budget for the makeup. So the makeup, which was so amazing in the first one, began to get progressively worse. And uh, if you if you ever had a chance to watch these movies, uh, you will definitely notice that the original Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston was absolutely fantastic and an amazing film. Uh, just such a complete mind fuck of an ending that you kind of went, holy shit, I did not fucking see that coming the first time you saw it. Number 19, Barry, 1946, It's a Wonderful Life with James Stewart. Yeah, that's a, that, I mean, it is a good ending. It's a great ending. It's an iconic movie. It's not something that I guess would immediately spring to mind for me, but yeah, I, I definitely see where they're, they're going with that. So I'll tell you something that uh, maybe you don't know and isn't something that's widely known is this movie, uh, was one of the first movies I think James Stewart did after serving, uh, in World War II and a lot of what he, put on the screen as George Bailey going through this mental breakdown, this mental crisis of thinking that he's lost everything for his family and his business. He called upon some of the stuff. I think he was like an army air corps, uh, like a pilot or a bomber pilot. And some of the stuff that he saw during the war, he called upon that to display the emotions. Like when George Bailey's crying and becoming overcome with emotion, he was remembering stuff that he had seen during war or two. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I hate to say he used a uh, post-traumatic stress as part of his, uh, you know, character's development and what sure. the character was going through, but he absolutely did. And it makes the performance by James Stewart, uh, all the, uh, all the more amazing. Donna Reed, by the way, always looking good as his wife in that number 18. Oh, Barry, a big favorite of yours from 1997. Barry Rose, guess what happens at the end of Titanic? I knew you were going to go there too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You know, look, I'm not I, one of your favorites. I know, not one of my favorites, and uh, you know, I, I don't know how you say it's a great ending if it's a legitimate historical ending. I mean, you know, I don't. It's like something. I think it has more to do with the fact that Rose eventually, uh, you know, shall we say, returns to Jack 
she she goes out to where the ship goes down and she ends up dropping the necklace and you know there's always that uh you know is it just the necklace that's going into back into the ocean to be reunited with the ship or does rose herself go back into the ocean to be reunited with all the people that were on the ship so all i know barry is that you have told me more than once that your heart will go on i know <clears throat> see what i did there i do it's very good next barry were you a fan of the Marvel Avengers series, Infinity War from 2018. I never saw it. So I, I did see several Marvel movies. By the way, I know that right now Michael Herrick and several other listeners uh, that are active in the group are completely horrified to hear that you have not seen just not the entire Marvel series. Yeah, that you missed one Marvel movie, therefore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is I, the one where Thanos snaps his fingers. Wipes out, like, I don't know, like uh, 75% of the population, something like that. Uh, you got me on that, Jeff. I'll have to take your word on that. I, uh, yeah. So look, I, a lot of respect for these movies. I, I have no hate for these movies. I, I have like some of them. I just, I don't, I'm not swept up. The same as like the Mandalorian, which is the hot thing. I'm just not swept Never up. Never seen one uh, again, Herrick with the Star Wars stuff. These guys, they post the fucking Star Wars and Star Trek stuff. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I, I was never into Star Trek. I know that's a stunner for some people. Uh, I watched the first three Star Wars. I liked them. They were good. I have not go. followed every subsequent side storyline to Star Wars anyway. Number 16, Barry. Yes. This, I gotta say, this was a, this was a good one. If you've seen it, Barry Rose, Toy Story 3. I did and I cried. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, absolutely. It's a very emotive because, you it know, the, the thing that's great about this, is that you can, you know, the, the scene where he gives the toys away to a little girl. I mean, this is not just the guy giving the toy, but this is saying goodbye to his childhood. That's exactly and, what it was. you know, that, that's something that any man, woman, or child, you know, like you eventually grow out of stuff and, and you say goodbye to the past. And sometimes it's easier than others. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's tough. I You know, shit, I'm sure I've still got books that I had when I was a kid. And there's things that you just hang on w- with the grim grasp of death because you don't want to give up that part of your past. And, you know, Kim's the same way. She's got stuff from when she was a, a girl. And, you know, like uh, we uh, I didn't tell you this. We uh, we went to say goodbye to Kim's uh, Uncle Tom recently. And, you know, like, uh, he, uh, he passed away, uh, due to, uh, complications from bladder cancer and stuff like that. But, you know, Kim was talking about, uh, the, you know, the discussions that, uh, her uncle and her father used to have. And, you know, like, uh, there's that famous line from, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, Blade Runner, which we just talked about before we started recording this segment, where, uh, you know, he talks about memories that will be washed away like tears in the rain. And, you know, those memories that uh, Tom has, uh, you know, are uh, with his brother, Hank, Kim's father, are now washed away. And, you know, Kim and I have talked before and I, and I told her the other day, I go, you know, I go, I don't know that I'm really in contact with maybe more than one or two persons from my first marriage. And so there are things that were happening to me at that time in my life. That I don't, you know, it's not like I can call somebody up and go, hey, remember when this happened? You know, because those memories are are mine and mine alone, and I have nobody to share them with. And getting back to Toy Story 3, you know, he had all those memories with those toys that now, hopefully, the girl that he gives them to 
uh, you know, in the storyline, she will be able to start creating her own memories from being able to have those toys the way that Andy did in Toy Story 3. Man, if you ever want to have a good cry, watch Toy Story 3 because that ending just absolutely hits you right in the chest. Great endings, number 15, slightly different than Toy Story 3, Barry, is 1960s Psycho. Oh, and what a great Slightly different slightly different but what a great ending and it, it's the kind of ending where you're com- this is the way ending should be we're completely caught off guard this is not what we expect and you know to me when you get a film and i gotta say like you go back to toy story and it was hard it was heart-wrenching it's a it's you know anybody especially wrestling fans because there's always as wrestling fans there's always that little kid that'll live inside of us right like it's sure. always going to be there and when you watch Toy Story and, and you see that it's devastating. Then you get to this and this is kind of the Kaiser Soze twist. When you think you know what you know, maybe you really don't. Maybe it's this. And Psycho is. I mean, what a great film. What a great ending. Yeah. Uh, Norman wouldn't hurt a fly. That <laughs> was Anthony. And poor Anthony Perkins. I don't think he ever escaped from that that character. It, it like oh, literally... Did. Uh, made his career and then it like ended his career all. I mean, yeah, of course he made some other great movies, but he was always so stereotyped as Norman Bates because he was so great in the role. So Barry, I know a number, uh, another of your favorites, Barry, 2003's Lord of the Rings, the return of the King. You're a big fan. I know Barry. I saw a couple of them and I liked them. The ones that I saw this, it might've been 2003. Was it? I, and I don't know which one was which, but that, that time frame, time frame sounds about right. I don't remember the ending though. I got to tell you. Well, yeah, of course the ending is, uh, you know, that, uh, the king acknowledges, first of all, how much that the hobbits have done to preserve what they have. And at the end, Frodo, uh, you know, decides that he's going to basically, uh, go with the, uh, the elves and leave the, the pain that he's gone through by having to carry the ring. And, you know, one, one of the things that's crazy is I remember when high school, uh, back at the good old Belleville East high school, there was a guy and this was good Lord Barry, 1979, somewhere wow. around there had a TV, had a t-shirt that said Frodo lives. And I remember at the time I had no idea what the Lord of the Rings was. And I was like, what the fuck does Frodo lives mean? Like <laughs> and I, the guy had the t-shirt that he wore all the time. I had no idea what it meant. Number 13, Barry, 1982. Is there anyone possibly in the group that has not seen E.T. the extraterrestrial? Wow. And another movie that depending E.T. on, home. I could start crying. It's a, uh, it's a deeply powerful movie. And I, I got to tell you, one of my favorite things about it is, have you ever been on the E.T. ride at Universal Studios? Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. So I have a, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a, uh, it, it's kind of a tradition. I, it's probably, I was going to say, you know, so, but it, it's kind of a tradition that I've got. Whenever I go to Universal Studios, I go on the E.T. ride three times and I'll do it. I, uh, you know, some, some sort of you're like uh, ADD thing. You got to do it three times. It probably is. It's I I like initially when you go through the queue and and they you they say what's your name and you give them a card. I always give the phony name. I know everybody does that. And then at the end, <laughs> ET goes. Well, wait, wait, what what's your phony name? What's your go to? Oh, I've name? used a lot, and I did it. I did it with a group of people. 
and there was maybe 15 of us, and we all used the same name. So E.T.'s just going, goodbye, Roberta, goodbye, Roberta. It's really funny, but I've used everything. I use Ric Flair. I've used them all, and uh, it, to me, that's always a lot of fun. But then the other aspect of that ride that I like, as you're waiting in the queue to, to, look, to get on, to load on to the bicycle that will take you on your journey, you're in essentially the woods, and there's a smell to it. And they actually sell candles based off this smell. I have no idea what this fucking smell is, but I love this ride. There has been talk for years that they were going to discontinue the ET ride. And I, uh, just because of all this talk, I make sure I go on it three times. I did find out that apparently the ride can never be replaced at any point, discontinued, closed, whatever it is, without the express approval of Steven Spielberg. So Spielberg is, I don't think he's ever going to demand the ride be taken down. So this ride could be there for life, much like the movie. I love the ride. I love the movie. I love both E.T. phone home. You know, it's, it's really pretty astounding that the, the movie is over 40 years old, you know, yep. and this is not uh, a movie that you sit there and you look at and you go, ah, this looks 40 years old, you know, because kids hanging out, you know, on their bikes, getting in trouble and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, just the whole, uh, you know, reportedly when Spielberg made this film and uh, he basically saw Elliot uh, as himself as a young boy because. I Elliot. Think that, what's that? Elliot. Yeah, because he, uh, you know, his parents had divorced and the trauma that he went through from his parents divorcing uh, and. That's what Elliot is going through. The same thing that Spielberg went through. So, Barry Rose, trivia question. Okay. Reportedly, what actress played the voice of E.T.? Oh, this is legend, not 100% confirmed. Legend has it, though. Allegedly, she provided the voice, E.T. You know, I always want to say June Foray, because that seems like the easy, but it doesn't appear to be her voice, because this is a deeper, more raspy. This was, no, that was the lady who did uh The Exorcist. That was Mercedes McCambridge. I yes. don't know. I don't know. Who was it? Deborah that? Winger. Really? I never yes. heard this. Yes. Wow. Number 12, Barry, 1967. Boy, this is one of those transitional movies uh, as you're going from uh, kind of older school Hollywood to now this is like the young people, uh, college-age kids really stepping forward. 1977, director Mike Nichols, The Graduate. Yeah, that's a great That's a great movie, too. That's a lot. What year was it? 1967. Oh, my God. Yeah. How old Elaine! is that? Yeah. Uh, wow. Great movie. Mike Nichols was a hell of a director too. Yeah. I, I don't remember the ending having a gigantic impact. Well, the, on the, the ending is, of course, that he, uh, gets her out of the chapel where she's marrying the other guy. Right. And they basically get on a bus going to who knows where, you know, what, what is the future that's in store? Guess, yeah. For these two people. And I think symbolically it was a way of that generation, uh, you know, uh, of young people that were in college, basically taking a bus ride to who knows where the, the future is in front of you and make of it what you will. How about that, Barry? That's kind of poetic, huh? I like yes. that. Number 11, Barry, 1941, director Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, Rosebud. 
Bob's butt. Yeah, I and I could see that too. It's uh, and this is a movie too. It's uh, you know, for years this movie was considered the greatest movie ever filmed, and it was held in the highest regard. And I remember watching it and going, "Yeah, it's a good movie," but I don't quite get it. Watched it a couple more times. It is a great, definitely not the greatest movie ever in my opinion, but it is a good movie. The ending, the ending makes a lot of sense to this movie as well. This is the payoff for a very well scripted and well acted movie. So I could see it. Well, and in a lot of ways, uh, and this just came to me, uh, you know, the article stating that uh, the ending is a clever callback to the past that shows that his childhood memory is what he truly valued, much like we discussed Toy Story 3. It's those childhood memories uh, and, and things from your past that stay with you. Incredible that when Orson Welles made this movie, I want to say he was like 28 years old. He was the writer, director and star of this movie. Like, uh, it, that a, a kid that age could make a movie widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. I saw this movie in my film as literature course. And like you, I, I thought to myself, well, this is, this is a good movie. It's kind of an interesting story, but you come to appreciate what were you doing at 28 years old? Were you making the greatest film of all time, Barry? No, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can assure you I was yeah, not. You know? Exactly. So, uh, okay. Now we're to the top 10, Barry number. 10 from 2010 it is inception yeah I, and i don't remember the ending though leo leo dicaprio that's like the thing with the little uh what is it the little it wasn't a dreidel but it kind of looked like that with the like you spin it and that's like to determine whether or not you're in reality or right. you're in the perception of reality i remember leaving this film thinking Wow, this is quite the mind fuck of a movie. You know, when we talk about Planet of the Apes uh, and stuff you saw, because it was one of these where what's real and what's like, you know, part of this uh, not dream sequence, but this alternate reality. And you were never quite sure. And Leo DiCaprio was always trying to figure out, uh, you know, which which was which. And uh, it's a great film. But like I said, it's it's definitely a mind fuck of a movie. Number nine, Barry. Oh, I think you referenced it previously. From 1995, director Brian Springer's The Usual Suspects. And there it is. And this was such a hot deal at Probably the time. should be higher. Probably because it was such a, there was such an impact to the, to the reveal. And that, look, the whole movie is, who is Kaiser Soze? And by the end, everybody's guessing. And I don't, I think most people were guessing incorrectly. Uh, and they weren't going with the, the person who it was, uh, that was chosen to be Kaiser Soze. But yeah, what a great movie. The only negative is in movies like this where the endings, where there's this great twist ending, the crying game was another one. Do you remember the movie, the crying oh, yeah. game? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you can repeatedly watch these films. Based off of that, where something like the Jimmy Stewart, and I, I know a lot of people do watch that movie every year right around Christmas time, the ones that have the great twist that you don't expect. Yeah, I like the Sixth Sense. It's, it, how many times can you watch it again? Yeah, you know, yeah. what, to me, they're built. There's too much emphasis on the great reveal. But yes, Kaiser Soze, that was a big fucking deal. Well, and you know, I, I think I've said something along these lines before, but you know, fucking Kevin Spacey. Why did you have to go be such a fucking scumbag? Because in doing so, you robbed us of literally one of the greatest actors of the generation. I mean, he was amazing in this. He was amazing in so many other films. 
And I, I feel like him being such a alleged, excuse me, alleged scumbag, uh, really robbed us of so many more great, great roles. I, I was just the other day, Barry, I turned on the TV in the afternoon and seven was on and I found myself getting caught up in, in seven where he was John Doe. By the way, whatever happened to John Doe in our group, Barry? Where's John Doe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, oh, and Barry, number eight, go figure. From 1995 director David Fincher's Seven. Well, I swear to God, I didn't know that was coming up. Yeah, and, and that makes What's sense. What's in too. the box? What's in the box? So this is another one. But this one I think you can watch multiple times. The whole movie wasn't built around it. But this was this was a great ending. This was an impactful ending that uh, I remember when I saw it, it was disturbing enough that I think five hours later, I think I was lying in bed going, wow. Like, I'm still thinking about this movie. That's always the sign of a great ending. This is absolutely a brilliant piece of art, uh, of film art. But on the other hand, it's so fucking dark. I I mean, like, this is like grim. You know, if you've never seen Seven, please don't watch it with your kids. You know, don't traumatize your kid the way Barry's parents traumatized him by taking him to see The Exorcist. You know, but... I mean, this is just a great, great film as these two detectives search for this serial killer and this horrifying ending of the film. But even if you know what the ending is, if you know what's in the box, uh, it's still a great, great film. And I know it was nominated for an Academy Award. I have no idea what the fuck beat seven for the best picture that year at the Academy Awards, but must have been a hell of a movie because this was a great film, as was the film at number seven, Barry, 1942. It's Casablanca. Yeah, another great ending, too. And it's not – there's no big twist here either with the ending. It's not like some, you know, big twist. And But the way that the movie was – I think this is one of the great movies of all time, too. And I actually like it more than, than Citizen Kane. I, I think this ending was just excellent also. Great backstory to the making of this film as they uh, apparently had about five different uh, – um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not, not stories, but, uh, fuck. Why can't I, uh, you know, like the, the, what the hell is that the cast reads? I'm sorry. The, the script. script? Good lord. Yes. Uh, about five different versions of the script. Uh, there were a couple of directors that were brought in and were fired and then they kind of threw this thing together and they ended up making one of the greatest movies of all time somehow out of that. It's just amazing. Great story about an expatriate living, uh, in Casablanca that is asked to assist someone escape from the Nazis. And he really, uh, you know, he doesn't want to help, but, oh, let's just say there's a romantic entanglement involved. And I'll just say that Ingrid Bergman was pretty fucking hot in 1942. At number six, Barry, <clears throat> great endings from 1989, Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. Absolutely. And the whole movie is a, uh, it's especially for males, it's a cry fest. It's a lot of relationship, uh, you know, father and son stuff in this movie. I cried, I, you know, I think the entire theater, at least the middle-aged males that I saw it with were all crying as well. Great film, might be Costner's best film. And uh, great ending as well. It's perfect in so many ways. Well, it, it's like a... It's like a poem or some sort of love sonnet to baseball, but also to fathers and sons and sort of the complicated relationship that is involved somehow with fathers and sons. Continuing, Barry, with our list of movies with perfect endings, number five from 1976, 
Boy, Barry, you talk about a guy that literally took everything he owned and bet on himself. You got to give the guy props for that. It's Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. How do you, how could you say a negative word about, you know, the, whether you love or dis, the film is a great film, but the ending is something. It's one, it's magic. I mean, let's be honest. This is the shit that created Sylvester Stallone's career. And I, I think he had been in, I know he's in Death Race 2000. Apparently it made some softcore porn films. He was um, the Italian I, stallion, I believe there. I uh, think that was the name of it. You know that, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and with that, it, this is the type of magic that's created with film because look, he had a great director. Stallone was essentially the guy behind Rocky A to Z to have the vision, but that ending is is the ending of of what a great film should be because what it did and I remember being a little kid or you know relatively little kid and just being sucked into that ending going this is the greatest thing I've ever seen it was so believable and you got to give props to Sylvester Stallone as well Jeff you and I both huge fans of Tulsa King I believe it's on Hulu if I'm correct I forget exactly which streaming service it's on, but I loved it. You actually turned me on to it and said, you got to watch this show. Got to give Stallone a lot of credit. And really, again, this ending is out of this world. This might be one of the best endings of any film ever, but how many people in, I guess we're 40, I don't know, shit, we're 47 years now. How many years has Stallone been relevant? It's 47 fucking years. That is, that is, in my opinion, just unbelievable, Jeff. Uh, you know, and here's the guy. We, we talk about guys that have, uh, you know, if Sylvester Stallone only made Rocky movies, okay, that he was a, a one-trick pony, and, you know, he, he was done because he didn't have anything else. He couldn't do anything else. You'd have to give him respect for just the, the Rocky series. But then he went out and he did uh, the, the first blood, uh, you know, movies with, uh, uh, Rambo. He made a career out of doing Rambo movies. Uh, you know, then he did the, uh, what was it? The, it was it not the untouchables, the, the expendables. That's what I was expendables, thinking. Expendables. Yeah. Made a whole series of movies with the expendables. So this guy's had three major franchises. And besides that, he's done other really solid movies. You know, he, like you said, Tulsa King, he did, um, a movie that I really liked. That I understand, I just read like within the last couple of days, they're finally making a sequel. Not that anyone was screaming for it, but, uh, did you like the movie Cliffhanger where he's like the mountain guy, the mountain yeah, guy? I, guy? I think yeah. you just, you said the all important phrase. Not that anybody is really clamoring here screaming for yeah. a, a sequel, but this movie's 30 something years ago. Yeah. And so, so they're making a sequel to it. Uh, boy, you know what I remember about that movie? John Lithgow in Cliffhanger was a Fantastic. great, oh man, he was great, but. Well, anyway, wait. The great Ralph. Yeah, Wade. Ralph Wade yeah. from the Waltons. Yeah, and uh, what was the who was the girl with the short hair? She was. Um, oh, that I don't remember. Uh, she was a she was like a, a hot actress for like you know maybe like a three or four year period and kind of just fell by the wayside. Right. Like, like, like Dana Delaney or somebody. No, but she kind of looked a little like a, uh, Dana Delaney. Um, but anyway, let's get back to Rocky uh, and if maybe Janine Luke, Turner. That's what Janine Turner. Yeah. So. Yes. Uh, Michael um, Rooker also in this. Film. Yeah, Michael Rooker was great in that. He's always wow. a good, solid villain. But uh, anyway, getting back to Rocky. The thing that was so great was he literally was, you know, it, it, the story is that he basically had to bring his dog to a, uh, you know, like a place where they, you know, a, a, not a vet, 
but like, uh, you know, he traded his dog in for money. And then after he got the money back, he, uh, he went and basically bought the dog back. And the dog was in the movie. His dog, Budkiss, that, uh, Talia Shire gives him a, towards the end of the movie is, was his real dog. Wow. And the, uh, the two turtles, Cuff and Link, uh, apparently, he had those turtles for like, I don't know if they're still alive or not, but he had them for like 30 years. Yeah, those were his real pets. But how so, long do turtles live, Jeff? That's I have no idea. I'm and not, not being a tortoise uh, right. expert, maybe, you know, perhaps someone in the group. I don't know. It's been I'm sure we have one. I'm sure yeah, we have a lot. One. Shout out to our listeners in the Galapagos Islands uh, who are big turtles. <laughs> we're uh, number one in Galapagos, aren't we? Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yes, we, we, we beat out those guys from Long Island. Anyway. <laughs> from Ronkonkoma. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like four people with that reference. But, uh, but anyway, so perfectly get Burgess Meredith was so good as Mickey. And I got to tell you, somebody that does not get the appreciation they probably should have, Talia Shire as the mousy girlfriend, Adrian, because, you know, she had been in The Godfather and yeah. had a reputation, you know, uh, in the, uh, movie industry. And here she, uh, she plays this mousy woman who's sort of like a like a flower that blooms towards the end of the movie. And so what I wanted to ask you was, you know, talk about the perfect ending. The ending, of course, spoiler alert for those of you that have never seen the original Rocky. Maybe you uh, want to mute the mic here for a couple seconds is that he loses the fight. He loses the fight. But in the long run, what he ends up gaining is respect, which is something that he had been searching for. The whole movie was for people to respect him and the effort that he put into, you know, what he was doing. So that being said, with the benefit of hindsight, what would you think of the movie if they had decided, uh, you know, in the end to have Rocky win the fight? How would that have affected the ending? That's an excellent uh, question, too. So I'm trying to look at it in different ways, because I think at the time, I think it actually made a lot of sense in not having Rocky. Win. Sure. <sighs> I I. I think it made more sense. No, he didn't need to win the fight, right? Like, I think if that's the best way for me to look at it, he didn't need to win the fight to win. And, and I think that's what they were trying to convey across. And I, I think in my eyes, it worked. It, it also, it definitely set up future movies, which I don't think was the intent, obviously, but no, but uh, like it part, would have been good. In, sure. in part two, he does win. Okay. So, right. you know, and uh, that's why, quite frankly, the, the the future Rocky films were always a little progressively less than the original. And that's not the shit on people that are big fans of Rocky three, four five, or, uh, you know, the Creed series or stuff like that. But Rocky one, the, the fact that he doesn't win the fight, but he wins the, you know, it's like you didn't win the battle, but you won the war, you know, right. because you got respect. He got Adrian, you know, uh, which is, you know, what he wanted was someone to basically spend his life with. Anyway, on to number four, Barry. Oh, Barry, one of the great films of all time from 1972. How do you feel about the ending as uh, Diane Keaton is standing at the door? The door slowly closes as they begin to kiss the ring of Al Pacino, the new godfather. That's pretty incredible too. That's a, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of those moments in film that, that may have actually changed the course of film in a lot of ways as well. Super impactful. And, uh, whether it was Godfather one or two, 
you're looking at two of the great films of all time. And, and occasionally we'll see posts that pop up in our Facebook group, Jeff. And as we like to say, if you're not a member of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the Facebook group, why? Because quite frankly, podcast, why are you listening to this episode? Why, if you're not there, it's, it's exactly this. There it's are an, apparently better shows on Long Island that you could be listening to, Barry. In Ronkonkoma? That's the one. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> hey, it, do I have permission to light a, light a promo up on those guys or no? <laughs> I'm so ready. Father discussion. All right. Cause I'm so ready just to go on that one as well. Uh, thinking I can get a couple hours out of that, but yeah, it is, uh, you know, the, to me, the Godfather one and two. And I think the point I was making before I got sidetracked, which happens with every thought is, uh, occasionally a post will pop up in the Facebook group where someone says, yeah, I've never seen the Godfather and I'm proud of it. Or I've never seen The Godfather and have no desire to watch it. And that's really bizarre to me if you like movies and film. If you don't like movies and film or the greatest movie ever made is maybe Cabin Boy to you, then I get it. But Godfather 1 and 2 would be like saying, look, I don't love The Beatles, but I can, I've listened, I, I believe to every single Beatles song out there. And, and by the same token, if you like movies and you like film, the Godfathers, one and two, literally are two of the best movies, if not the two best movies maybe ever made. And I'm not saying they're my favorites, but these are almost damn near perfect films on every level. So I'm always shocked by that, Jeff. Uh, you know, there are, you know, we talked about Citizen Kane. Uh, Citizen Kane is absolutely brilliant from a filmmaking point of view. It's a great story. Now, do I sit down on a rainy Saturday afternoon? That's the standard we always use. And if Citizen Kane is on, do I sit there and say, Ooh, yeah, I got to devote, you know, two, three hours to watching Citizen Kane. Uh, well, on the other channel, you have, uh, you know, some, uh, Will Ferrell, you know, the other guys or something like that. I'm probably watching the Will Ferrell movie because that's, you know, enjoyment and it's stupid. And I can sit there and have it on in the background if something else comes up and I got to go to the kitchen for something. I understand that, you know, but if you are saying, boy, I love movies and you don't have an appreciation for the art that is Citizen Kane or the art that is The Godfather, I don't know what to tell you that's going to convince you to otherwise, like Barry said, go enjoy watching Cabin Boy. But, uh, you know, this is brilliant on so many levels. But the story of how one man becomes corrupted by power uh and you know all the trappings that come with power and you know in a lot of ways it's very similar to what happened uh with um what do you call it? when he played Tony Montana why can't i think of the name of that uh, Al Pacino uh, no no the movie uh, Scarface Scarface you know like it, it's about how one man becomes corrupted and uh, i don't think Scarface is as good as The Godfather sorry for those of you that are big Scarface fans but how Michael Corleone becomes corrupted uh, by the power that he, uh, gathers as the Godfather. And of course, his father, Vito, did not want Michael. He wanted Michael to be the college graduate and the man that ends up becoming, you know, a politician and, you know, leads the family into another, you know, the next generation into a, a different sort of respectability and stuff like that. Because Vito Corleone had all the power and all the money and influence. But what he didn't have was he didn't have the kind of respect that comes with, you know, being, quote unquote, respectable and watching Michael become slowly corrupted, uh, you know, in, in a way that basically Sonny was supposed to be the guy that took over the reins. But it ends up being Michael because, spoiler alert, <laughs> Sonny doesn't make it to the picture. But let's just say that. Uh, anyway, uh, on to number three now, Barry. Now, here, you know, Barry, we talk about movies that the first time you see them 
and you see one of these endings that kind of comes out of nowhere that you weren't expecting, you kind of go, holy fuck. But does it have a rewatchability factor because you know the ending? Because, Barry, the first time that you saw The Sixth Sense, Ooh. that was a biggie. Was a I biggie. See, I see dead people. I see dead little Haley, Joel Osment, and uh, Bruce Willis. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's finest work. I don't think there's a question about that. Well, and I would debate it only. I, you're right. Let me go back. Not my favorite M. Night Shyamalan film, but might be his finest work. I like the one that he did, Split. I thought Split, and it was funny because we were talking about Split, I don't know, a month or two ago, and we were talking off air about it, and I realized what I liked about the movie, and it was the acting of James McAvoy, uh, who plays several, he's got a split, split personality, so he plays several different characters, uh, and he's just, to me, it was one of the great performances I may have ever seen. M. Night Shyamalan's movies, and I, they're terrible. And I just, I went and saw the latest one, Knock at the Cabin, I believe it was called, starring Batista. So there was a wrestling connection. And uh, it looked good. It was an interesting premise. And literally 15 or 20 minutes into it, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be another one of his movies. It's just. Did, did you he, see the one? Did you see the one? I, I saw the trailers for so long where the people are at the beach and like the, there's some kind of uh, something going on at the beach where. The older version of yourself will yeah, emerge, you. and you know, like uh, the the previews were like, oh, it looks kind of cool. And then I read the reviews, and I was like, hey, hey, well, maybe not. It's it, and it's I can't figure out why his movies aren't great. And I think if anything, they're they're buoyed by the uh, by the acting, and they're buoyed by or buoyed by the uh, the guys that he gets. Whether it was Bruce Willis or Clarence Williams the third. Uh, who was also fantastic in Glass. You know, he he gets some pretty decent acting. Didn't get it, knock at the cabin. I can tell you that because boy, that. Wait a minute, Dave tough. Batista wasn't up to the level of Clarence. I, I, or I feel Willis. bad because I know he's a decent actor, but I got to tell you. So the weird thing about this one, Dave Batista, in all of his glory of like 260 pounds of testosterone and steroided muscle tattoos covering allegedly, his allegedly, body, allegedly tattoos covering they. His, his profession is preschool teacher. So they, the typecasting isn't, I just, I don't know. But to me, M. Night Shyamalan, and I, I you know, massively over, he's just not good. And I, I wish he was. He's well, from PA. I, quite frankly, the guy is living off his reputation that he made with the sixth sense. And, yeah. you know, it was it, uh, it was glass and split and unbreakable. He's had, you know, a few good films after that, but he's really living off the sixth sense. That's the one that set the bar for everything. And, you know, he had, he did the village and what was the one with, uh, oh, Mel terrible. G the village. Oh my God. Uh, the one with Mel Gibson and, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, where it's like the aliens, uh, Is that signs, signs. Yes. You know, he yeah. made it and they started getting progressively a little bit worse. And then he'd have one that was kind of like well-received because that whole, unbreakable and split. They were sort of the story ends up you finding out later that they all sort of tied together. Right. Uh, right. There was some sort of like superhero uh, aspect uh, or something like that. But the sixth sense, uh, getting back to that, the finish, when you find out uh, when uh, Haley Joel Osment says, I, I see dead people. And there's all these little clues throughout the film as to who he really means. And then at the end, when it's revealed who he really means, 
at the first time you saw it, you're like, oh, oh, oh I didn't see that coming. That's kind of really cool. But it's one of those movies because you kind of know what the ending is. You know, is it a rewatchable film once you know what the end is? I, I'm not so sure, Barry. It's not. And I, that's, you know, to me, a great movie. There's two different types of great movies. And you, we, we've gone through this multiple times. There are great works of art, Godfather, Citizen Kane, etc. And then there are the great movies, meaning that I could sit and watch it 50 times in a week if I have to, right? That, that makes it great to me. So yeah, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, I don't think you can watch any of his movies more than once, in my opinion. So I'll tell you a movie that I can watch more than once. I'll oh. segue there, Barry. At number two from 1986, based on a Stephen King short story called The Body, it's Stand By Me. Four yeah. young kids walking down a railroad track going to see uh, reportedly a body that someone found uh, by the side of the railroad tracks. What a great fucking coming-of-age movie, Barry. Just absolutely epic. Yeah, I don't remember the ending per se, but it was a great movie. And uh, M. Night Shyamalan didn't direct that one, that's for sure. <laughs> Rob Rob Reiner, right? Yes, old Meathead. Yes. Old Meathead came yeah. through this, with that this one. This might have been Old Meathead's finest hour, I have to tell you. I think uh, based off of Stephen King, as you said, clearly yeah. said, solid performances by the young actors in this film. And and I think what made this movie, and certainly you got to give King credit as well. I'll give Reiner a lot of credit for a, uh, a, a faithful adaptation. I know it's a little bit different, but what, what this film does is it captures the embodiment of youth and being a kid and going on the railroad tracks and just walking and these little things that a lot of times we don't even think of. You know, it's just the way that we live as kids. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, it's not all leave it to Beaver-ish in a sense, which I love leave it to Beaver, by the way. So I don't want to pick on Beaver, but uh, you ever pick you love, on You love the Beaver, do you, Bear? I love the Beaver, but it's not all uh, happiness. There's some sad stories. You know, I think the Corey Feldman story uh, in that film, I forget, he, La Chance, right? Yeah. La Chance. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is a great film, great ending, and it's, it's great. I remember seeing this one in the theaters too. So what's great about the film? And by the way, uh, a special note of appreciation for, uh, Kiefer Sutherland in this movie, who plays like the town bully. Uh, and he's really, really good as the kid that sort of is a couple years older that sort of torments these four kids, uh, for a while in the, in the film. But, uh, you know, Barry was talking about, uh, he wasn't quite sure about what the go home in the movie was. Uh, the four kids return home, uh, as they're walking up to where their homes are. The narrator of the film, who is Richard Dreyfus, talks about what it was like having friends when you're like, you know, 12 years old and how he wonders whether you were really as close to anyone as you were to your friends when you were 12 years old. And then, the reveal of what happens to his friends and, and what ended up being, uh, you know, what happened in their lives. And it wasn't all happiness, as Barry said, you know, sometimes, uh, things take a, uh, a wrong turn for, for people in their lives. And it, it's sort of like, remember the ending of American Graffiti, Barry? That where, I remember. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. Do. Where they, they told you, uh, oh, this guy was killed in Vietnam and this guy was killed. I think there was one guy that was killed in a car crash or something like that. And, and, you know, it was like, you kind of were like, wow, that's, you know, like, uh, that's a little depressing. And, and in the sense there was, it was sort of a 
sad note, but it was done. The narration by Richard Dreyfus was absolutely just spot on as he, you know, he was the guy that was revealed to be Gordy as an adult. Uh, I think Gordy was played by Will Wheaton and, uh, you know, and to find out what had happened to Gordy, who wanted to be a writer, uh, as he was part of the group of four kids and to find out that that's what he ended up doing. And as, uh, the adult Gordy, he was able to tell this story about his four friends or his three friends when he was a kid. And it's, it's a terrific movie. And, uh, you know, we sit there and say, appreciate the Godfather and, and Citizen Kane for the art they are. Uh, Stand by me is a, it's just a, a film about growing up and it's really just a, uh, that's the kind of movie on a Saturday afternoon that has a rewatchability factor. Now, speaking of movies I've seen more than once, Barry, <clears throat> again with the smooth segue from 1994. Oh, Barry, it's another. Stephen King based story. I believe it was based on another short story called, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption was the original title oh. of the story. Very, it is the Shawshank Redemption. And, uh, go ahead and give us your thoughts. And then I'll tell you what's a, a really interesting, uh, backstory about this film, the making of the film, the release of the film and what happened afterwards. Well, I know you, I know that you love this film. It is, uh, <sighs> I, the ending is great because it, the ending is the way the ending is. Had it, had it not ended that way, I, I think, I don't think this movie would have been held as in high regard. And the reason I say that there, there's brutality throughout this movie and it's, there's uncomfortable brutality, in my opinion, that takes place throughout this movie. And had the movie ended with a super negative, you know what this movie would have been to me? It would have been a grown up version of the last American Virgin. And, uh, and that's a movie. I can that see I, that. Yeah. I fucking hate that movie. No, you and me both. Lot. You and me yeah, both. For a, and you know why? And it, it, this movie is, you know, there were scenes in here with Tim Robbins where he's being brutalized. And I got to tell you, it was it the, the sisters. That's what they called the, uh, the group that attacked him. It's, it's disturbing. Yeah. Like I, what did I say? On a, on a level of Ned ago? Beatty being violated in yeah. deliverance. <laughs> and it's 25, 30 years ago I saw it and I can tell you it's very disturbing even to this day. So had the movie been a negative that I think the entire movie would have been a negative. The fact that there's a positive and this is a decent guy and Morgan Freeman too. My God, these two together were just fantastic. Uh, and I'm surprised they didn't make any other movies after this, but maybe that was intentional. Excellent ending, Jeff. I do agree. One of the best. So the story has been told about this movie when it was originally released that it was not extremely well received, uh, you know, by the really? by the viewing public. I think it got critical uh, raves, but it just wasn't a big success at the box office. Then back in the days, kids pull up a chair and listen to uh, Uncle oh. Booker and uh, Uncle Barry. All right. Back in the days, there was this thing called Blockbuster Video. OK. And uh, there was the little mom and top uh, pop video stores, too. They usually had that little room with the beaded curtains. Barry, remember that? And you'd go in there and uh, hope that no one saw you behind the beaded curtain. But anyway, back in the days when there were videos and video cassettes, people found the Shawshank Redemption. And all of a sudden, the reputation of this film literally exploded. People discovered this movie and what a great movie it was. The acting of Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman. Uh, the, who's the guy that was the, the guard on top of the roof and he was in, uh, bad boys, uh, always played kind of Is a, it, uh, Clancy Brown. Yes. Clancy Brown. He was terrific yeah. in this movie. The guy that plays the warden is really Bob Gunton, but yeah, uh, just a hard ass. And he's a brilliant, two great villain, uh, performances. 
And then you got, uh, you know, um, James Whitmore, who's like the old guy that's been in prison his literally his whole life and uh, doesn't know anything. And the scenes where these guys get released and they give them a menial job in a grocery store and just how depressing it is that these guys who have been institutionalized for so long don't know what to do with their lives. And, you know, just uh, had all they know is someone telling them to get up. And there's a scene where Morgan Freeman, uh, after he gets released, goes up to his boss at the grocery store and says, uh, can I go take a piss? And the guy says, hey, you don't need to ask me if you can go to the bathroom. If you need to go to the bathroom, just go. The point is that Morgan Freeman had been in prison for so long that he was used to having to ask someone, hey, can I go to the bathroom? Because that was part of his routine for so many years. And then, of course, the ending where they end up finding each other on the beach of uh, was Zehuatanebo, I believe was the name of the, the town in Mexico, and the final scene where you see them, you know, reconnecting. And it really was uh, one of the, I think, one of the first movies that really showed what we would uh, end up calling a bromance. You know, it was like two guys uh, who just were best friends, who stayed best friends uh, through a, you know, horrible institutionalization. And then after that, you know, after they both got out of prison, one on a legal manner and the other not so legally, uh, and, and then they found each other and resumed their friendship was really kind of a neat moment. And uh, I'm really happy that people back in the days uh, of videotapes found this movie and gave it the credit it deserved. It was nominated for like a Best Picture Award, you know, and rightfully so. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just a tremendous film, great ending, great story too, Barry. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, in one of those films that stays with you, even, you know, if, if you're moved by film, stays with you even a year later, two years later, even to this day. And I think everybody that's ever done a Morgan Freeman impression, because he does have one of those deep resonating voices, always starts with Morgan Freeman going, Andy Dufresne, because, because he must, when he's narrating the film, uh, the way he says the name Andy Dufresne is every impression that anyone's ever done of Morgan Freeman has a version of Morgan Freeman saying Andy Dufresne. Number one on our list, the Shawshank Redemption. All right, Barry, episode 293, just about ready for the old go home. Perry Rose, we have offered a lot to the folks today. We've had a match from the UK, a little movie talk, a little NBA, NHL talk and rant, uh, other stuff. Are you about ready to call it a day, my man? I am ready to wrap up today, Jeff. You are ready to rock and or roll. Oh, wait a minute before we go, Barry. Yes. Don't we have a fan fest coming up? And now, is it like less than three oh. weeks? Yes, and Jeff, remind me, I need to talk to you when we're done recording about something. Uh, So we are, yeah, we are less than three weeks away. We have got, you'll see this tonight, Jeff. I was going to say, have you seen it? But then I realized I have it programmed. Baron Von Raschke was at a uh, a show. Baron Von Raschke, who is either 82 or 83 years old, was at a fan show in St. Louis over this past weekend and recorded a promo for us. And I got to tell you, this guy hasn't lost a fucking step. Like I listened to him. I, I listened to his interviews, all that. He, he is as clear headed as anybody could be. So I'm super excited that Baron von Raschke is on top at, at the next fan fest. Jeff, you'll be moderating that, that 90 minute, two hour Q and A, uh, in catered dinner. We do have to have a talk about 
one or two people that continually seem to ask the same questions every time and want to ask 50 questions. Uh, <laughs> and I know, I know that you know who I'm talking I'm not, about. I'm not thinking of anybody, I'm sure. Sure you're not. And, uh, but with that, I'm super excited. Jerry Briscoe, Steve Kern, Leilani Kai, Judy Martin, Joyce Grable, Gary Michael Capetta, Cuban Assassin will be there. Nora Did you Jabar not Barry. tell me? That David Penzer, who I know that when you see him, you're going to rush up, hug him, <laughs> greet him as a brother, uh, as I know uh, you will. Uh, did he not tell you privately, and this, this is something that's breaking, Barry, All right. that Hulk Hogan will be making an appearance? Is that true? Well, I can neither confirm nor disconfirm that okay. information, Jeff. But I will say that I have talked to Penzer in the last week with breaking news about the Fan Fest. I'll have to leave it at that. Just exciting, exciting times we live in, Barry. That's all I can say. On that note, I will say that Breaking Case Abe with Valjean and Barry, still amazingly a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Can't believe they haven't kicked us off yet, Barry. But we're getting close. We're, yeah. we're getting close, yes. So for my co-host, Barry Rose, who, as we speak, is thinking about that drive to the airport in Philadelphia going, holy fuck, what time do I have to get up? I'm sure Linda will hear this part and go, what does he mean by that? But anyway, I am Jeff Bowder and our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, out in Dave Chappelle's favorite city in the United States, San Francisco. Thank you very much, Sweet Lou. And I love my boy Gunny and haven't forgotten him. On that note, sweet Lewis, the pride of San Francisco, the city by the bay. Take it home, my man.